All right, guys, it's time for the Next Level Guy Show, a men's interview, interest, and improvement-focused podcast featuring interviews with the greats from all industries to help you better your life. Each week, a new episode features an interview with one of the greats covering all aspects of their story, from life hacks to tips and protocols that have allowed them to live life on the next level. We then highlight concrete action steps that you can use to improve your life. And now, your host, Ian Dawson McKay. And today's guest is Dave Salmoni. We discuss animal education, conservation and chat shows. Dave Salmoni is a Canadian animal trainer, entertainer, host and producer. He has his own production company, Trisophere, which is based in South Africa and specialises in wildlife films. Salmoni has hosted and produced several television documentaries, including Living with Tigers, Into the Lion's Den and Sharks Are They Hunting Us? All three documentaries aired on the Discovery Channel. Salmoni has since starred as a host and expert on Discovery and Animal Planet shows, including Animal Face-Off, Rogue Nation, After the Attack, and Into the Pride. He's also hosted Expedition Impossible, a Mark Burnett show on ABC. Salmoni is regularly featured on numerous talk shows, including Jimmy Kimmel Live, The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, Larry King Now, Conan, and Good Morning America. And in this interview, we discuss how we can have open and honest discussions on animals to truly start to make a difference, hunting and land use, the truth about animals on talk shows, how you can help animals being affected by the COVID pandemic, and so much more. And now, let's get to the interview. Thank you so much for coming on. You have no idea how much I've been looking forward to this. You're you're one of the first people I wanted to have on the show. Um, I've been a big fan of yours for years, but for maybe the four people who don't know you, could you give a quick introduction? Because how how do you define what you do? I I do find that difficult, and like certainly having kids now, like and you meet people like and you have that like ten second schoolyard introduction. If someone asks me, I kind of almost ignore it because it's what I do is I I chase around you know my passions and the things that I love to do. And what that's led to is I'm a biologist. Uh, I'm I, I was an animal trainer for for many years. I guess I still am technically. Um, I work in television. I guess my job is I'm a large predator expert. I have been doing host driven wildlife shows for the last 20 something years, uh, since 1999. So whatever that is. Um, so what I do is, you know, I'm a person who's interested in animals and wildlife and I, and and I go and try and sell the story that I'm interested in to try to get networks interested so that I can tell the rest of the world so that they can be interested. Uh, and it's, it's literally that simple. Unfortunately, that doesn't fall into a, I'm a biologist. I'm a zoologist. I'm a wildlife host presenter. Like I'm a lot of those things. I'm a producer. Um, I'm a dad. Uh, I'm an animal activist. I'm a conservationist, but you could say all those words and still not quite get it. Cause it certainly was difficult to explain. You know, usually I can say to somebody, he's a jujitsu competitor. He's this, he's that. But when I was trying to explain what you did, I was like, um, let me get, let me come back to you. It really depends so, on the depth of the dive, right? Like, so, uh, if you, if you Google, the stuff that comes up usually is more the talk show stuff that I do in the US where you see me on a show like Jimmy, Jimmy Kimmel Live. And so some people, that's as deep as their dive goes. 
then then I'm a guy who goes on on TV uh, with animals to try to convince people that animals are awesome and that conservation is important. You need dive a little deeper. You're going to find you know the Animal Planet stuff and the Discovery Channel stuff. And then if you dive a little deeper, like, as it, so you can really, uh, it really does become difficult depending on how much looking as to what I do. But it, but a lot of people only know me from their window. So uh, you can always tell, you meet someone in an airport, and like, oh my God, you're that lion guy. I'm like, okay, to this guy, I'm a lion guy. That's awesome. And, or, 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 oh my God, I've seen you on the talk show guy. You know, so you're right. So. You've you've talked about how your like passion for animals is inbuilt, you know. I mean, I think people who love animals are just born with it. Like I, I love all animals of all descriptions. But I mean I've I've worked in an area where we you know, you raise sheep, we see wild deer and stuff like that. But I mean you come from Canada and now working in the African bush, you know, you're chasing lions and tigers, you're swimming with sharks, all these sorts of things. Could you give somebody a little introduction? Like how how can you go from it's not the usual career path is probably the best way of putting it. Can yeah, you give us a true. little summary? Yeah, I, I'll give you the summary, but I won't, I won't suggest it is a how to because it just happens. It does, it unfolds in front of you rather than it uh, being something that, Oh, well, this is an easy career to have if you just do these things. Um, I started, as you say, born with this love of animals. I always thought animals liked me, whether that was true or not. I, I always had that belief uh came to choosing what university degree I wanted to get and animals was really the only thing I was interested in uh not with the idea of a job yet which was dumb in most people's definition of why you go to university but that's what I wanted uh that led to tracking bears and doing an honors thesis in bear behavior uh too much time in the in the research department got me into the idea of I actually just want to spend time with the animals so then I left that and became an animal trainer I went to a privately owned zoo who really believed that animals didn't belong in the cages. They belonged out of the cages. So they learned the rules, liked the rules. Then they could come out and exercise every day, entertain their brain. I bought into that idea, thinking that that was a good way to make some animals that I loved, uh, make their day a little bit better. Um, and then from there, got the opportunity to do a conservation project with tigers. That project, oddly, tigers drew me to Africa. And then... That was the project. The Tiger Project in Africa was the one that got drew me into television. Television kind of kicked the doors open to whatever you're interested in, Dave. Because I was I started in television right when Steve Irwin was just exploding. Like they just like picture the networks are just seeing Steve jumping on crocodiles or, or alligators and saying, "Oh, look how awesome this is," and them saying, "Well, we could get some more of this." And I kind of rode that sort of that kind of tidal wave that that Steve created. Uh, so the networks were just saying, like, just keep doing what you're doing and make sure you love it. And the people that are watching are going to love it, too. And and that kind of got me to this, a 46-year-old father who is, you know, pretty beat up and broken from all the different adventures I've had, but uh, but also pretty fun life. No, I mean, it's definitely one of those lives that I would love to have. You know, you, you seem to have the dream life because I've coming from the Highlands. We got to see like wildlife, like wrapped close and personal. And it always made me like, where do they go? The migration paths? How do they breed? How do they do this? How do they do that? And you're living that dream. You're getting to go off and explore these things. But can you explain about how you say if you got uh, like a, a project just now, you were to go and explore the bush looking for a particular type of animal could you explain like how you even go about something like that how do you start planning to find the animals locate them film them but make sure that you're portraying the the you know the true behavior of the animal rather than the manipulated that you see you know like 
some of these tiger programs on Netflix, for example? Yeah. Um, it's an interesting question. Each each idea just starts with something that I'm interested in, particularly the ones that are dangerous. But if you're going to be out there in the middle of the bush risking your life, um, you better want to be there and love being there. If the if if the if the driving factor is television or fame or money, then you're not going to survive very long. Uh, I, I did meet those guys. I, I just didn't understand those guys. Um, so with an overarching question, one being maybe, I wonder if I could introduce myself and be accepted by a pride alliance. Right. With that question, the research starting point is very obvious. It's a matter of uh, what does the world think about human and animal uh, interaction, that animal interaction, and what do I think that what do I think I bring to that that is different? And then from there, my next question is, what's the worst case scenario? In my head, that's kind of what I'm doing. I'm researching what we already know. I'm researching the thoughts that I think. What do I think that's different? And then if I get attacked by that bear, shark, tiger, what do I need to know? Now, if it's a big cat or something like that, it's it's very close friends of mine that I'm calling and I'm going through stuff with. If it's sharks and things like that, I'm actually you know going online like you would and say, who are the smartest shark people? Who knows anything about shark attacks? Who's ever survived shark attacks? Who, does anyone have a solution to a shark attack? And then really going to like a fitness professional and saying, all right, well, if I'm getting attacked by a shark, here's what my body needs to do to, 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 to keep myself alive. So if I'm giving myself the confidence from Dave, you're building a body that can react properly when you're in the terrible situation and you've built that interest around all the other research and your brain's in a pretty good spot. You're in a real positive position to get out there while I'm doing that. I've got, you know, the producers that I love and the friends that I'm used to. So if I'm doing an African adventure, I, I had a, I have a production company in South Africa. It's obvious. I call them up and I'm like, hey, guys, where, what's the best Pride Alliance or Great White Shark area or elephant area where we can view this behavior and um, get this reaction or understand it in this way? Uh, but then along with that, you're also having to build a team, right? So you're only as good as the worst person on your team. If you're going to be doing lions on foot, you got to find some cameramen who are great at capturing images for the people at home so they can tell the story, but also not be in danger by being on foot. I mean, to some degree, I'm in charge of everyone's safety, but also to some degree, everyone's in charge of their own. So, you know, you build the team over the years of great African guys and great North American guys and and, then, and so it becomes species or danger specific. If you're underwater, in my case, oddly, I've probably been underwater 500 times because I've done a lot of aquatic shows. But because I'm a host and because I, I never really got confident because I started, I learned on camera in the show. Uh, I've always just had one or two safety divers. So because of that, safety has never been my, my thing. So even in my 500th dive, I still don't feel great underwater unless I'm with some safety guy who knows a bit more. So um, that's all the elements. The actual production and finding the location and getting the deal done as far as rights, insurances, uh, the finances, uh, all that kind of stuff. I get involved, but it's not my bread and butter. It's not something I'm good at. It's it's kind of the other stuff, the research side, the passion side, that, that is wh where I uh, tend to drive the, the project. Because it certainly comes across with your love of animals. You know, every time I've watched shows and stuff, 
it's you know it's not so much the the celebrity stuff of it you're actually interested in the animal you're always checking on it you're always talking with love and passion about the animal and it really comes across to somebody who understands it but now that we see these rises of all these extra like documentaries on youtube and netflix and it really bugs me that people see that as a good animal husbandry you know that that's the accepted thing i think that this current day and age will be the death of all the stuff that you're talking about. As far as like having groups of wranglers that I can call up and say, Hey, we're, you know, we've got a group that's interested in cheetah conservation. Can you bring your cheetah so I can do a presentation, explain to people all the 70,000 things I think are awesome about cheetahs and really get people in that room pumped up about saving this cheetah. Like those people are going to be gone because net, not Netflix, but the, the what's happened after the Netflix specials like Tiger King or the subsequent ones, it's got the world believing that that's what is normal. Like those people will crack pots well before they ever had a special. Like I knew of those crazy people and they were the crazy people. Like every position, everybody in the world, we all know crazy people in jobs that we do. Like I have a, I have a couple of friends that are mailmen, but going postal is a whole different thing, not because of what actual normal mailmen do. It's because there are crazy people in every profession. Um, so I I do believe that because public opinion through social media uh, was shifting greatly already in that the activists are the angriest and the loudest and trolling is a lot more popular online than anything else, really. And so it's kind of the message that people are seeing then that gets reinforced by Tiger King and the media that surrounds that. So the only thing we've ever heard of captive animals in the last three years, at least, um, is bad. So if someone like me absolutely is, is getting lumped into people like them. Whereas the truth of the matter is, way back, my very first uh, on-camera experience, experience where I was like the animal wrangler, the Jack Hanna, the guy that's holding the animal on a talk show, trying to get people convinced. I realized back then in 2003 that there wasn't a good enough uh, standards and practices where there was a vetting system where the producers and I knew for sure that that animal came from a good home and is going back to a good home. And yet I, so then I spent the last, what was that, you know, 18, 19 years developing those systems to the point where I don't think you could go anywhere in North America and get a captive animal on screen without going through an intense vetting system. That's designed by me and my teams, the lawyers and the and the animal husbandry people that I have been working with since 2003. Like that's where that all comes from. And yet, all of a sudden now in 2021, I get lumped in with these people that are you know acting a fool and breeding cats you know for pictures and uh, you know selling them irrationally and all these other things. I, I I think that it will change the landscape such that it will never recover. On top of which, COVID. Because those little small places, those little rescues, those little sanctuaries, those little people with those big, big hearts for animals, they're always breadlined. If you ever see anybody over my shoulder collecting up one of those animals, you'll see love, but you won't see wealth. Like those people aren't doing it because they're getting rich doing it. They're doing it because they really love it and they believe what I believe. Like sometimes the amount of money that they're – they probably barely get their gas money to be out there, but they believe, oh, man, but if Dave gets – my snake out there. Maybe Dave can convince people that snakes aren't so scary. And they and they and they and they desperately want me. And when they're handing it to me, they're like, "Hey, make sure you tell tell people this interesting fact because I think that will catch them 
into thinking that this snake's not a scary snake. It's a good snake and people will stop killing it. Like that old process, all those wonderful people, they don't have people coming to their place and paying the $10 to, to, to see them do their little animal shows or, you know, their conservation based shows or their, their education shows. Uh, and I think that COVID will have hurt a lot of those people to the point where animals are going to suffer for it. There won't be. So if you get a tiger King, there won't be as many happy homes anymore that you can say, okay, I'm going to take that tiger from that jerk and I'm going to give it to this happy little group over here that do take care of their animals. Those guys are gone. The good happy guys are gone because they just ran out of money or they got attacked so much on social media that they, they couldn't survive. I mean, you do see that, don't you? It's like the, the Lion Whisperer, um, Dean Snyder, or these like people who spend amazing amounts of effort and love and you know they have these um like animal rescue places that they really look after the animals but then you get these sort of arseholes who think nope that's it my my view is black and white you know that's wrong taking an animal on a talk show for example like we we're discussing before that you know we started but if that's what we need to do is to take them onto a chat show to educate somebody and explain to them the plight of the animals and how the conservation work's been happening and i think that's the problem is it creates such an emotion in people that, you know, we were just black or white. It's I'm right or wrong. You know, it's like, it doesn't matter what you think. That's my opinion. And that's the truth. And that bugs me because I've worked, I lived in an area where we see animals getting slaughtered, you know, for food. We raise and sell lambs and stuff like that. People don't even know where their food comes from. Never mind where these live animals like that are known as the king of the jungle for a very good reason. How how do you start educating people into this? You know, how do you start trying to build up an education program so people can actually understand a how to interact with these animals, but b how we can look after them because we keep sort of encroaching into their you know their um, habitats and we're building on land that they were roaming on. We're always going to bump into them, but people say nope, trophy hunting's bad. Nope, we shouldn't shouldn't be hunting. But, you know, we don't have a replacement funding source for these places if we take away hunting, for example. And we don't have um, ways for them to make money elsewhere. So how do we start educating people on the plight of animals and helping in our conservation efforts? I know that's about 50 questions, but... Yeah, yeah. And, and there's lots, lots to unpack there. And it kind of digs into the original thought that the biggest problem that animals have in my opinion is that those of us that have a voice cannot agree because you're right it is very emotion based and and moral and ethical based when you when most people's protest each other like maybe like if kevin richardson says oh i hate that dave Salmoni guy for this reason you know i saw him do this with a lion and i don't do that i do this with my lions there's lots of things for two animal people to disagree on but Eventually, what has to happen in the very near future is all of the animal people who have a voice have to say, um, doesn't do it my way, but we have to have the same voice because we need the other people. There's no point in me selling another lion guy that lion conservation is important. They already knows. Whether he hates me or likes me, we all want to save cons- uh, lions. We just might not disagree agree with each other. What the problem with the disagreeing and the, and the and voicing of our disagreeing is that there's not a consistent voice coming out saying, hey, guys, this is what lions need. And that's kind of the question you had, is how do we get people to uh, jump on board with the conservation effort is by getting consistent with what we say. Putting the disagreements, like when the first thing comes up, when, you know, oh, do you know this conservation group? Oh, I heard about this. I heard about them. Your answer should be, 
oh, yeah, they're doing some good things. Maybe not exactly how I would, but good things. And you voice that consistent voice within the because the people looking, the people who are actually going to make change in, in, in the world aren't the animal lovers like us. It's the it's it's us getting the rest of them going. It's why I go on talk shows. There's no point in me if you're tuning in to Discovery Channel, Animal Planet, and watching my show already. You already love animals. You don't love my shows because you think I'm nice in a, in a green shirt. You like lions. You like elephants. You like sharks. <laughs> the talk show people. I'm that's the other audience. That's the bigger audience. That's the group of people that are like, hmm, I think I like animals. Oh. Watching that guy, now I know I like animals and I love that guy. And, oh, they need help. Well, what kind of help? And that's when you start to get your bigger team and your bigger people. And they all and, and the voice and the consistency of what's needed grows. And people want to do it. People love animals. You, you'll, you, even, though, even the people that don't agree with each other. Like, I don't agree with what PETA does in any way, but they're all animal lovers. And at some, some way, we have to get out there and... And, and get the rest of the people going, okay, we all have to push in this direction because animals deserve their space uh, and hopefully in the wild. So that's the start. The start of getting the change is um, is getting consistent with what we're telling the rest of the world who just quickly Google, you know, what can I do for elephants? There should be a list right here. This is what you can do. Um, and then I think the rest of it is, as you say, as things get tricky, like land use, right? Where people say, oh, well, if you love animals, you shouldn't love trophy hunting. Well, I think that's true in some cases, and I think that's completely untrue in other cases. As you say, land use is, if there's no other better conservational uh, method in that particular area, then 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 hunting will do it. Hunting will, will keep some animals there wild, because farming certainly doesn't. Farming means all the wild animals go. So it's 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 those more difficult questions, I think, that need just people to take the time to specialize and learn. If you think there's a better land use for animals, then then figure it out and and, and present that idea. And hopefully the people you're presenting it to uh, have an open enough mind. Like the problem with a lot of times is like, oh, okay, if I think that this is much better run under ecotourism than it is trophy hunting and you present it to a trophy hunter, the trophy hunter is like, well, okay, I, I forget it. We're not doing that. Um, so I think, the elements of all of it basically runs down to how do we get the people that need support, the support they need? Because in the only places where animals are being conserved are when they're an asset, right? So if you go to Africa, outside the fences of the game reserves, the animals are devastated. Whereas if you go inside the game reserves, they're awesome. And every local that's in there because they have jobs uh, making food, taking tour guides, fixing buildings, whatever it is that their job is, they love their job. And so they love the animals because the, the, the animals pay for the job. And and in all of the places that those animals become an asset, the, the people are supportive. And once the people that are living with that animal are supportive, then it's going to be great. I was really deep into, and M would like to be, uh, deep into tiger conservation. And I spend a lot of time in India in the really rural places where the tigers are, are, are you know living. They're living with some of the poorest people, sickest people, you know, people with the least amount of stuff that I've ever seen. Uh, it's pretty tough to explain to them, hey, you should be worried about this, this, you know, apex predator over here. Yep. Uh, well, they can barely eat themselves. Like, I don't think that's that's a stupid conversation to have. Whereas if you create a job with that tiger or even just create, say, hey, Tiger Conservation built this school, this church and this hospital. And we'll keep doing it and we'll keep funding it if you just leave those tigers alone. Those are the projects that work. And I think we know that now. And I think that. You know, big groups like WWF are starting to push in those directions where they, they recognize you can't have 
a little project in isolation, meaning you've got to go after politics, you have to go over community support, and then you have to go over the wildlife. Getting an animal to live in a wild space is pretty easy. We really do know how to do that. It's the other elements that support it that, that, that I think would cause uh, the rest of us to, to be more successful. For example, and I know I hate conservation com- conversations where they seem doom and gloom and impossible. Uh, tiger populations have started to grow for the first time in the last since they started going away in the 50s. So they've doubled uh, every year for the last three, which is great news for tigers because we're figuring it out. Because that's the thing, isn't it? It's like if you're sitting there and you're like, okay, brilliant, like we'll put out an advert for you know raising funds for tiger for tiger conservation. You know, maybe five people see it, but you go onto a popular talk show. You might, you might educate somebody, inspire somebody who actually has oh, never known about it, and sees 100%. it and goes, you know. And that's what I try to explain to people. It's like you have to bring it to in front of them. It might not be the methods that we'd want it to be. And you talked in another interview that I was listening to where you said we we, we need to stop thinking about how we want it to be and think about instead how it is. Yeah, and it's like you're saying, not, not to cut you off, but you also got to think of the negative. I know when you're talking that specific incident, the negative is, oh, you're exploiting the animal. Well, let's think about what that word means, right? Like, or, or even if you're stressing that animal out, let's think about what those means are. We can manage for stress. All of us, there's probably groups of people. I, every animal usually comes with two or three wrangle, wranglers. They're all watching. If they see stress in their animal, they've raised that animal. They know stress. They're all given permission. Take it away. Put it in its home. The minute it feels stress. So, so that's not really an issue. And exploitation kind of suggests that we're getting something and not giving something. Well, not exactly true either because we're, you know, the animals are loving the time out. The animals love all the extra treats. You've seen me by the thousands of every show. If you've ever seen anything I've ever done, I love giving animals treats because you're like Uncle Dave. Uh, so the negatives aren't really there. The, the possibility for a negative, absolutely. So like if I bring a full-grown bear, the possible negative is someone's going to get bit. Um, so that there, then I see then I see an argument, but I do not see an argument when you see an animal perfectly happy to be there. In fact, enjoying the time away from its captive life. That's kind of a little bit boring for its brain. They're getting all kinds of treats. We've got people monitoring for stress. There is no negative. But the upswing, as you mentioned so well, is millions of people are watching. This is your moment. You have two minutes to express the world how awesome a lemur is. And and I think I got him in 30 seconds. So uh, the upside is far, far better than whatever negative you can kind of come up. I'm sorry. Sorry. I know I, I interrupted you there. No, but no, no. Interesting point uh, that I wanted to make because the negatives aren't what people saying they are. They are. Well, for example, just now I'm in the Highlands. Uh, so I'm up helping my parents during like, the COVID situation, which explains my uh, disturbing background. And uh, I'm staying up with them. I'm just now we've got like the deer stocking season going on. So we've got like the, you know, the gillies and we've got everybody going out and shooting. And then you start having the conversation of they, we've got a team that are going out just now who are really skilled and they will not just shoot any animal they see. They will pick particularly older animals, sicker animals. But then you have the thing of, well, do we take the animals that are stronger if we're selling them for food? Do we kill off the younger ones? Do you kill off the sicker ones? How do you control the population? And that's just the deer. But if you don't control them in a certain way, because some people say ban all shooting animals, but then you have an explosion of a population. 
yep. you know, the prey predator, yep. like balance goes out, the ecosystem goes crazy, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that's just deer, for example. I mean, and they're everywhere here. You know, yeah, they're a nuisance on the road, et cetera. Well, what, what's interesting is, at least in Canada, I think that one of the highest taxpayers, uh, income taxpayers, is the deer hunting community. Uh, and on top of which, as you say, the government uses them as their population management tool. So you're getting free labor because they're going out managing your population for you. And they're paying taxes on the beer and the gas and the travel and the accommodation. And anyways, uh, to your point, I personally don't want to hunt. I can understand why some people get upset when people enjoy killing something. That's just because I didn't grow up in the culture. So that's, mm-hmm. but Me you know. have to understand that animals are, once again, I go back to ethics and morals are your own. You can't expect even your closest friend to have your ethics and your morals. You have to accept whether you like it or you don't, that deer population needs those hunters. And if they're not there, they're gone. So uh, I totally agree with you. You, you, you. you don't have to appease the person. The person can say, I still think you're a jerk for shooting that deer. Okay, well, you think I'm a jerk, fine, but it still needs me. And I'm doing more for conservation of that deer than you are yelling and screaming about me being here. Because it's something I've, I've noticed. Like I, I worked in a hatchery salmon smolt site. Uh, we were we were growing them from like the eggs through to like this, you know. And the amount of people who would say to me, oh, salmon, like raised um, factory salmon. It's disgusting. It should be destroyed. It's a horrible industry. But you looked at like in the Highlands, how many jobs it was sustaining. How many people were able to live here because of that? How much of an um, industry, the other side project, uh, companies that were working with us, that were, we were funding, especially right. in COVID time? And I think that's just fish. That's just deer. Look at them at like places in Africa where, you know, lo- local tribes who have only got, like you're saying, they're interacting with lions on a daily basis. They're interacting, you know, with these amazing animals. And yes, they're beautiful and no one wants to see them getting killed and stuff. But I think we have to have that discussion is where do we draw that line between good animal husbandry, good control and love of animals? You can love animals, but still manipulate and control the stocks. And especially as we're continuously taking over the planet, you know. How, how have you noticed animal behavior changing over the sort of like the 10 to 20 years that you've been working? Have you noticed a change in their behaviors and in the kind of maybe how people are accepting it or how animals are behaving now as we move into these kind of areas? Yeah, I think that there are, because um, they have been around, there are instances like a coyote, I would say 20 years ago when when a coyote, a coyote wasn't considered domesticated animal in any way. Whereas now you see a coyote, like when I grew up, it was a raccoon. So in North America, if you don't take care of your garbage in the city, then a raccoon's going to get into it. Um, and now that's also true with coyotes. Like, you know, even people in the middle of downtown Toronto are saying, oh, we better keep our dogs in away from this coyote area. So encroachment in that way uh, exists and behavioral changes on both sides, uh, meaning the animals are are getting used to and understanding uh, when they should be moving, when they should be hiding, where they should be eating, where they should be. So behavioral changes uh, happen quickly. And then the human idea of what they are. So a coyote was a beautiful animal probably 15 years ago in, in, in where I am. And now a lot of people think of them as these, you know, enraged 
uh, dog killers. Whereas, I mean, I don't, I don't even know if there's even been one case, but I'm sure there's been one or two around here. But I, that's what they'll all tell you. Oh, coyote. You saw a coyote. Oh, but keep careful your dog. I mean, oh, my dog's 120 pounds. I think I'm okay. Um, but outside of that, in the bigger picture, you know, I spent a lot of my life uh, in rural areas, you know, and elephants are one that comes to mind because it's the one that's probably the most devastating. Like I was in India um, looking into what people were doing and how they were living around India. It was an interesting fact that an elephant could in 11 minutes eat a family's entire year's worth of rice, which I thought was like, oh, my God. So like you you have to defend them every single night. You have to defend your crop every single night. And if you screw up for even 11 minutes, you got no food. So um, the things that are interesting there is what techniques people are using to get the elephants out of the way and, you know, what the elephants have, you know, started doing. So there's an interesting escalation, particularly in elephants, but it happens in other animals as well. So, you know, you would, you know, put chili peppers around your field. So then the elephants would learn how to get over the chili pepper fences. And then you would dig trenches and they would learn how to get around that. And then you, they'd start chasing them with fireworks and then, then the elephants would get scared and then they would run through huts. So there's constant escalation of, well, then I'll do this and I'll do that. Well, it's no different than a predator-prey relationship as they develop ways of getting around the predation. The predator, you know, gets smarter and then the prey gets smarter. So uh, the, the consistent adaption is a natural process that we're all part of and used to and is absolutely happening. Um and that the way that the, the changes that we're seeing in it is typically the ones that are the most devastating, meaning elephants is a great example. Um, monkeys are another good example because they, they, they're, they're in such numbers and, and they're, and they're so, such, so able to integrate themselves into a domesticated area really quickly. Uh, but there's examples of that all over the world where people are dealing with uh, wildlife as a pest. The animals that were like, oh, my God, I saw a vervet monkey yesterday. And in other parts of the world, they're like, I hate those monkeys. Damn vervet monkeys. If I see one, I'll shoot it. Um, so perspective is, a lot, is everything in those types of relationships. Because it's definitely something I see a lot of is people going, oh, it's absolutely beautiful. But it's like we pick a panda because we think it's cute. And right. we think we should work on it to, you know, procreate and give it as much space and all these systems to help it. But then we look at another animal that's maybe not as beautiful and go, yeah, let's just kill it. Oh, yeah. Reptiles are always like that. Bugs are like that. Like they, every, anything that's not beautiful really gets a bad rap. Fish, is as you brought up, like people don't care if you kill fish. I remember the first time I was asked to do like a survival-based show. And I'm like, well, I'll sneak up on animals and like tag them. They're it. But I, it's just not who I am. It's not where I'm comfortable. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to kill an animal just for a TV show. If I'm starving and I'm going to die in the bush, fine. I'm not doing it just for entertainment. Um, and the, their, their initial reaction was, okay, well, let's just do fish. And I, at first I was going to agree and go like, I don't know if that's completely different or if it's just because they're not as pretty or, or what it is. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's absolutely a, a, a fact that the, the better looking we, we deem an animal to be, the more support they get for sure. It was like that um, PETA advert where they were showing there was like different ranges of animals and they were drawing the line saying, you know, you'll eat this side, but not that side. What stops it here? And I was thinking, well, actually, other cultures will go much further over than, you know, and it, it's well, like that idea. Ask them about themselves, you know, why is it OK that I I have a you know, I'm a jerk. I'm, I get bad emails from them every day about the tiger I'm holding or the sloth that I'm protecting or, 
not to mention maybe they're the rescues, maybe they're from a sanctuary, maybe I'm helping them. And they got all dogs and cats and things in their house. Like every one of them's got a pet in their house. I mean, is that any different than what I'm doing? It's time for a quick break. There are millions of potential products to buy. So how do you know which ones are worth your hard-earned money? Simple. You go to nextlevelguy.com slash affiliates and explore those that will transform and improve your life. You'll find deals, listener exclusives, and special offers with some great companies. Recommendations are 100% honest and only on items Ian has tried or believes in. The companies showcased will make you a better man in all areas of your life. Simply go to nextlevelguy.com slash affiliates and level up. Because that, that's the thing that really bugged me about it was when I, when I initially saw it, that people were going, oh, you know, he, he's a jerk. Oh, you know, he's abusing these animals, taking them on a talk show. And you're thinking, well, A, you know, we need to get these, you need the education. You need to display these to people. And if it means going on to a talk show, you know, then fine. That's, that's a way we do it. You know, and we've got these great documentaries. But the other thing is it's like, you're not taking an animal just on, pulling it out of a, a, out somewhere wild and just immediately throwing it onto the thing. There's all these health and safety rules. There's training that you've got to put into it, you know, and you're explaining, you know, you're working with that animal to, yeah, you know, to give it enrichment. People are more telling. As you say, people would much rather say, oh, this is what he's doing. None of them have been there. They don't. They probably don't know that every time I go, I have to bring someone from a humane society to be there watching, right? So for, for anything like that, they probably don't know that uh, the the production side they have to have their team of lawyers look into all of the wranglers and all the people that are going to be anywhere near the animals and all the safety regulations, and then I have to on my side, same thing, legally check in, make sure everybody's okay, and then I send an actual husbandry person to their house, talk to their vet, talk to their staff, make sure that they're being taken care of. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. No one's ever asked any of those types of questions. They're just more likely to say, "Well, he he gets them and then he gets sold off into backyard this." I'm like, "Well, that's never happened." But okay, tell people that that's true or abuse. I just say, you know, and if you ever rewatched, I, I would not say that never has an animal been nervous on set. But what? But re, back and rewatch, you'll see what I do. I say, "Oh, I think I think this guy wants to go home," and I give it to its mom, and it goes into his face. Every single animal's got their own green room. That's a little quiet space with their special treats and their whatever. They, a lot of times, we'll travel them with their you know their friends, and they go back with their pals, and that's it. So, I would love to have those conversations, but it's not a conversation, right? It's an attack. I guess I'm not gonna I'm not gonna mm-hmm. give somebody ten minutes when they're already fuck you. You abuse all these animals, but. If it came at me and you were saying, hey, like, how do you make sure that you're doing the right thing? How do you make sure the animals aren't stressed out? How do you make sure that this is a good experience for the animals? I could say, oh, shit. You know, so, so glad you asked that because, of course, it interests me. That's that's what I do for a living. I, I, I could talk for hours the number of things that I do to make sure the animals are comfortable, make sure they have fun. I could tell you, you know, every single show I ever go on, they always say, man, these animals, they get treated better than the celebrities. It's true, but that, because the celebrities have a voice and these animals don't, I'm the only one. So my point to all of that is that, you know, we need to get back to that position where they ask the expert. I'm clearly the expert. How, how do we how do we take care of these animals that are going to be on these shows? Oh, let me tell you. I'm happy to. Because it's something that does come across is the love that you have for the animals. Sometimes you even forget to talk to the host because you're too yeah. busy checking the animal and explaining it. Like we, my family have grown up with, we've got sheep, for example, uh, sheep at sheep. 
to move sheep, you have to have a movement book. You have to mo- monitor the, you know, the medicines you give them. You have to have like a certificate from where they're going from, where they're going to. You know, it has to be ch- down the chain. It's there's so much regulation and control, and that's sheep. You know, and they're gonna people are gonna suggest you're just gonna pluck out a lion, you're gonna pluck out a monkey, and go. Let's take it on to Conan. Let's take it on to Jimmy Kimmel. Yeah, yeah. It's... Yeah, people, people don't want to hear. They don't want to hear the truth. As I say, it's never a question. It's always a statement. There's and there's reasons for that. And some of them I respect. Sometimes people love animals because animals are very accepting. There are people that are ostracized in our in our human society because of the way they they think and act and and, and are but are accepted like crazy with animals. Some of the you know quirkiest people I know are animal people. Because animals accept their quirks. They don't really care if you're cool or not cool. But those same quirky people, you know, the way that they express their love is almost in in knocking down someone else. Well, you don't love them as much as I love them. So if I knock you down, it, it shows how much I love animals. So I always picture someone on their little trolling keyboard. Oh, screw him. These are the six things he did wrong with that animal. And I try to in my head go like, oh, that person just loves animals a lot. They love the animals a lot. And this is how they tell their 25 friends that follow them on Twitter um, how much they love those animals. Uh, so it, it's it's an interesting perspective uh, because animal people are very passionate. Um, but certainly it kind of gets presented in a negative way sometimes. Because, like, if you watch any of your shows, you go in and, you know, you're very strict on – watching from the side you don't go in and like slap the tiger at the back of the head to say watch this you know watch me attack like show the attack procedure or something like that you will stay from the side you know you have very strict control of how things are done so you're not manipulating the animals and stuff how do you avoid getting to that point though of like okay we need to get viewers we need to get you know ratings how is there that tendency to kind of like, you know, because you've got an amazing skill set of working with these animals. How do you make sure so you're not getting overconfident and thinking? Well, it was a harder question to answer when I was younger. You know, when I first started getting into television, certainly directors that would come, you know, because I didn't know anything about direction. I didn't know anything about television. And so, and the director's like, and I'm more talking about in the wild because I before television, I was already an animal wrangler. So my, my ethics and my morals were pretty set in a captive or a studio environment on my own. I knew what was right and wrong or what I was okay with and what I wasn't okay with. Uh, but when I got into television, when you'd have a director say, hey, take another step, get, get a little closer to that animal. And I'd be like, oh, I think that elephant's you know, getting upset. I, I'm seeing him swing his feet. I'm seeing his ears come out and he's puffing a touch. Uh, I, think I'm, I think we're pissing him off. I think we're done for today with this elephant. And the director, who's got another agenda, he doesn't have my sensitivity, he doesn't see what I'm seeing, is saying, well, my film needs 10 more minutes of elephant. I'm sorry, but this is what we need for to tell the story properly. And when I was younger, I probably wasn't aware that I could just say, or I didn't put myself in a position where I could just say, I don't care. These animals need a break. Uh, very quickly, I realized that was a conflict. So that's why I started my own production company. That's why I was involved in hiring directors and producers. And that's why eventually with the, with the more dangerous projects, the more bush related projects, the more natural related projects, I was the boss. So in the end, if the, if the film and the storytelling ever got in the way with doing the right thing animal wise, well, I, 
I more cared about who I was as a human than I did about my television career. And that was, I was lucky in that way because I never, I didn't go into this wanting a television career. I stayed with it because they were paying for me to do some of the most incredible things on the planet. But TV wasn't my intention. TV was like this, okay, if you guys are going to keep paying me to swim with sharks, play with elephants and hang with lions, I'm going to do it. I think it would <laughs> be very that. hard. Yeah. I think it would be very hard if your dream in life was to be on TV. Like the people that call me up and say, oh, Dave, I want to be a television presenter with animals. That person would have a lot more trouble because they're they're living their dream and they would hate to you know, upset the apple cart. And if my show is going to get more ratings, if I just take that one more step closer to that lion, well, that's a good way to get killed. But it's also a good way to piss off an animal and then him not come back tomorrow or, mm -hmm. you know, just start to get the reputation of being a jerk. And then the cameraman won't work with you anymore because you piss off animals. And, and, and the people who are letting you on their property to film their animals are going to say, oh, you all you do is scare my animals. Like there's a lot of repercussions by, for being a jerk, but absolutely the entertainment side wants to push. So you need to put yourself in a position where the animal expert, the where me for this for this example is the top of the chain where he says, this is what we're going to do and not do so that the director can push. Dave, take another step. And I look at the situation and I look at the animal. He's calm and he's eating and that rhino looks really happy. And I can see they just want me to get in that light over there and I can go, yeah, I can do that and not piss this animal off. Let's, let's do it. Give me, give me, give me 30 seconds and I'm going to get into that position for you. So it's constantly going, letting the director push for the entertainment, try to tell the story the way he wants. And sometimes it is, uh, it puts himself in a, in a situation where I have to say, oh, no, that's not good for the animals. Let's stop. Or I can say, oh, I can do that, but here's the way we're going to do it. So uh, in the end, it's just a part of production. If you're going to be good at this job and if you're going to do it consistently and you're going to have the best team, I'm not the only animal lover on my team, right? Like you're not going to be a cameraman walking behind me as a lion charges you. If you don't love lions in the bush, that first lion charge, you're out of there. You're gone. I'll tell you a funny story uh, as I jump from point to point. But my point is we're all animal lovers. And if someone starts pissing off animals, you're not going to work with anybody. But to, to highlight that point, when I was doing a tiger project very young in my television career, we'd hired a new guy. And I was it was a five-year project. So cameramen were coming and going, coming and going because they had to go home to their families. This young guy out of film school was filming in a, these two tigers were captive bred and I was teaching them how to go wild. I was teaching them how to hunt and, and, and want them to go wild. My male tiger had caught something, but he was around four years old. So he was starting to fight me for his kills. Uh, but there was lots of areas where they would kill things that didn't have full fencing. So I'd have to take it from him and bring it back to where there was fencing so he could eat his, his kill. Because um, you can't have him overnight in an unfenced area, obviously. Anyway, I go to take this carcass from this tiger. Tiger is charging me, roaring at me, dragging me, coming at me. And like a tiger mad is like, there's nothing with a worse temper than a tiger. The tiger's temper is the worst. And, I, and I'm in this argument with this tiger. And I look over to my shoulder and this cameraman has got the camera pointed at his shoes and his mouth open like this. And of course, I'm in a bad mood because I'm just, getting attacked by a tiger. And I'm like, you're not going to film. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> and of course, you know, I get the tiger, I get the tiger back into happy mode. I get the carcass back into a safe area. He gets eating it. And I walk out and the guy on the, on the ride back to our, our camp is like, I'm, I'm going home. I'm like, yeah, I, I can see, you know, he didn't have the love and the passion that you would need Mwah. to, you know, be in the middle of the bush getting attacked by a tiger. So, uh, it, it takes a very special person to either be in front of the camera or behind the camera if you're going to be on that team. 
I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's like people just assume it's like you just nip out and you come across a bunch of tigers, you follow them eating, you know. It's like they don't seem to understand the, the amount of work that goes into it to, to let the animal trust you enough. Like, I mean, these are a lot of wild animals. These are kind of potentially putting yourself into that dangerous situation. Yeah. How have you put, how have you managed that transition then? You know, because you used to work solely with the animals and then you were going and doing actual presentations. Then you were actually doing the, the TV star side of it. But you still have to run the project. You still have to make sure that the cameramen are safe, do a risk assessment with the animals. You know, there'll be a lot of like following tracks and checking the, you know, making sure the animal's ready and it's safe to film, etc. How do you juggle that kind of responsibility? How have you found that transition from animal lover and cater to TV star, if you want to call yeah. it? You know, it's 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 one of the things where, at least in my in my case, I, I can't speak for everybody, but in my case particularly, I can remember I was very lucky early in my career. For the first five years, Steve Irwin was still around. And so no matter how big my star shone, I was many tiers below the top guy up there. The guy like I was, no one would be comparing what I was doing to what Steve Irwin was doing mm-hmm. ratings wise, TV wise, fame wise. And so you were never really a star in that case. So you didn't get as much of the, the celebrity treatment or the responsibility or being put in positions where you had to understand how, what that was and, and, and what it means. I think when I got older, was when I got more pushed into the entertainment side of my job, far less ripped pants in a tent, far more red carpets, studios, whatever, that kind of stuff. But at that point, I was pretty comfortable with who I was. You know, at that point, I already realized that the the entertainment side of it was what was paying the bills for me to go out and do what I loved. Uh, there was never a time that I can remember that some celebrity moment made me go, ooh, this is what I like and this is what I want more of. There was never enough money in it for me that I was like, oh, shit, if I just do this entertainment gig for a couple more years, I'm going to be this real uber wealthy guy. So there wasn't enough wealth to change my personality. There wasn't, you know, being the animal guy, there's never enough uh, celebrity to really change your personality. So So at a certain point when there were moments where I was like, I was being the TV guy and not the animal guy, um, you always knew what your intention was. In my case, I was an animal guy that was happy to smile here, take his picture and say the right thing because eventually I got to do my what I'd love to do. And in that case, it was going out and, and doing another animal adventure. And then long-term, when I got older, you know, the idea that I could make an impact in conservation through through TV uh, was a driving force there. So, so you know, you, you kind of dress a certain way and you say a certain thing and you let people kind of manipulate you in an entertainment fashion uh, oh, Dave, your hair doesn't look very good. Let me get it. Let me get someone to fix your hair up. Like in my normal life, someone can't walk up to me and say, oh, your hair looks like shit, Dave. But in TV, you accept it because it allows you that opportunity to go out and say, hey, guys, tigers are awesome. And here's why. Um, so I think it's just a matter of keeping yourself uh, grounded in a way that you know what you want out of it. What I wanted was more animal adventures. And I was happy to, you know, do, you know, wear a suit if I was going to walk a red carpet. If that then got me to you know, a nice whale adventure somewhere. Because you certainly, you don't seem to have changed from like the original shows I used to watch to to you going on to talk shows and stuff like that. But something I did notice was 
a lot of people, like especially like the Conan, and the Jimmy Kimmel YouTube, for example, people are like, oh, I didn't know about that, and oh, I've, you know, I'm really interested in that. Now, you, there seem to be thousands more interested in animals because of what you're doing. But of course, there were the people who were sitting saying, "Oh, he's hot. Oh, I, I would need to his workout. I wonder what you know." There was that kind of a. How did you deal with that side of fame? Did you struggle with that initially? You know that people were more interested in your love life more than the tiger that you brought on to show. You know, I think with it come, well, flattery is initially. Luckily, it's it's flattery. It never comes in a tidal wave where, like, it doesn't come enough that you're constantly faced with. You're not Justin Bieber. You know, you're, you you once in a while get complimented on on your looks or your or your fitness, which I care about because I do work out and I, you know, and, and those types of things. So I guess at f- the first way you deal with it is it doesn't have to happen as much as, you, as you'd think. Uh, but I think a lot of that stuff, is just learning how to um, speak on the subject without seeming conceited, without seeming. Uh, I, I just think there's a, there's an etiquette to dealing with things you were never taught to deal with in, in, in a fame ways. Meaning, you know, oddly when you when you start taking interviews, people can ask you about your love life, or like, hey, wait a minute, I met you five minutes ago, and you're asking me about dating this person, or you know. Mm. Or, or make those comments, as you say, to your face. Whereas, like, people don't say that to you in your real life. So dealing with that just comes with acquiring a vocabulary that you can kind of laugh and smile and say thank you in a non-awkward way. And in a way that, you know, you, I just think it's a weird thing to do. It's an awkward position to put someone in. And just because their career has put them in front of a camera, they have to learn how to deal with this weird social thing where people might be talking about your looks or talking about your dating life. Um, but when yeah, I so- went on, like when I Googled you, for example, there was all these amazing videos. There was all this amazing information that you provided. And then there was this like whole screed of bullshit about, oh, let's look at his workout program. Oh, he's dating. So, and I was like, you know, you've do this amazing job. You educate so many people. And that's what some people are interested in. You yeah, know, that's, it- what, that's what comes with the entertainment side of things. Like I'm certainly not one of those people that sympathize with the really famous person who says, Oh, I, you know, you shouldn't be asking me these questions or why are you chasing me around? Like there's something about being in entertainment. Like I often talk about the price of passion. You know, sometimes the price of my passion has been injuries, you know, attacks, uh, time away from home. But some of the price that I have to pay is the fact that what was paying for these crazy, amazing trips, the ones that you said, Oh my God, Dave, I'd love to you know, do that. You wouldn't like to do some of the entertainment crappy things that I have to do to pay for it. Like I say, it's not nice having someone say, go buy a suit and, like, oh, and make sure it's a freaking nice suit because you're, you're going to be photographed. I, like, like normal people don't have to deal with it. So uh, you just have to understand a lot of the entertainment interest, whether it's dating or looks or workout or there's, I could tell, give you 50 different things that is weird that only really happens to people that are in entertainment. It's not lost on me that I'm getting these crazy, awesome animal things paid for by being in entertainment. So I have to do the dance. I'll do the dance. Uh, and, and, and I hopefully learn how to navigate it in a way that I stay true to the person that I am. As you say, like, Oh, Oh, Dave, you're, you're like you were, you know, when you were in your twenties on, on camera. Well, the one advice I was given by someone in entertainment who'd been there for a long time. So just make sure you be yourself. If you're never playing a character, that character doesn't get old. Meaning when I was 20 year old, Dave, I was, playing 20 year old Dave on camera. 
So then 30-year-old Dave came along and people weren't tired of 30-year-old Dave because he had different interests and different ideas and different thoughts. And now that you've got 46-year-old you know, Dave, uh, I've always been myself. So there was never a point where, I, where I've overplayed some character that I was trying to be. I didn't ever try to be Crocodile Dundee or whatever. Like The one thing that really drove me crazy when I started doing talk shows is back when I started doing them, everybody wore jungle suits. Right, like the short shorts, the khaki vest, the and that because like the Jack Hanna, like is it? Like yeah, like Jack Hanna. And I don't want to run Jack down. He is, I, however, he did his thing. But like to me, the idea of wearing a bush uniform when you're in the middle of downtown New York or downtown LA, you know, in my case, I got a pretty regular gig on the Tonight Show before my regular gig on on, on Jimmy Kimmel Live. Like the idea that I was holding a lion but had to wear a suit. So you knew who I was like, no, I think even if I wear my t-shirt and jeans, if I'm the guy holding the lion, you'll get it. I'm an animal guy. Yeah. You, know, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. So I feel like you got to treat, stay true to the human being that you are. Whereas like I wear my bush gear in the bush and I can wear my jeans and t-shirts at home. Um, just as similarly, I didn't wear a three piece suit when I went out and, and did the tonight show or, or, or Jimmy Kimmel live, because that would also be weird. That's not exactly who I am. Like, you know, so, uh, all of that just comes with navigating who you are, keeping true to that and trying to uh, understand what your goals are. And my goal was to get back out there in the bush. And then, you know, that changed as I got older into, you know, wanting to educate people and interest people. Like if someone comes to me and says, oh, man, I really love this animal or I really got into this conservation because of this one thing that you did. That's like the ultimate compliment for me. I'm like, oh yeah, that's great. That's what I was hoping. Like that's that's why I did it. That's why I flew away from my family, stayed in that stupid hotel, you know, ate that crappy food so that I could go on that talk show and you watched it and you loved that animal because of that. And I think that's great. I'll do it every day. That is the thing that bugs me. Is like people sitting there going, oh, he's he's loving the fame of it. He's loving the celebrity of it. And I'm thinking, what, going away and spending months away from his family, going away and staying no. in a hotel trying to find animals. To, you know, there's plenty of other ways you could become famous. Look at the Kardashians. You know, yeah, yeah exactly right. Yeah, you can, you can do that. Uh, no, it, there is a cost to all that stuff, you know. And, and on the other side of things, like, you know, if you get uh, a free drink because someone liked your show, awesome if someone comes over the, the biggest compliment usually it's something that most like you wouldn't typically get without fame it'd be like with someone coming up and saying hey you know what you do i love it i think that's awesome because you can't do what i do without being passionate so if someone else comes up and says hey i'm also passionate about what you do i also love lions and i love that one lion thing that you did that's that it, that of, of anything that fame brings me those moments are the ones that i'm like oh man that's awesome because you just you've kind of met this kindred spirit in a restaurant or at a, at a airport somewhere and, and and you get complimented for something that you really really care about which which i like so what advice would you give to somebody who's wanting to go into like conservation or working with animals and has your sort of outlook on it um change now that since you become a father or does it make you want more more inspired to to show the next generation and give them the love of animals that you have i think it changes as time changes i think conservation if you're aware of the world i think conservation changes my biggest concern for conservation is the fact that a lot of the conservationists are academics hmm. and that world changes too slowly in my opinion and they're less functional meaning when you're in academia, you don't have a boss over your head saying either either you get to hear by, you know, in the next six months or you're fired. 
So it's not a results-driven business. It's more like get your grant study or thing, answer your question, and carry on, keep doing that. So living out in the world of being functional and needing to get results, that's what conservation needs. And 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 the the needle's always changing because, you know, for example, the world is now re-questioning whether climate change is real. Like no conservationist five years ago would have thought that that would be a reasonable question to ask. So it, you yep. have to pivot. You're like, oh my god, there's this humongous group of people that think that I've still I've got to go back to the 90s and explain what climate change is to people, so that we can get them invested in this and in that. So my point to all that is that you're always having to assess and and what conservation needs and to be good in conservation. And in my case, particularly because I feel like my skills really are in the kind of a spokesperson, information uh, encouragement. Uh, I'm like the recruitment office for for wildlife conservation. Uh, that has to change, and so uh, becoming a parent didn't change that because even before I was a parent, I had switched into that headspace of like really my goals for the next ten years is going to be motivating people to to love animals the way I do. You know, I love I, I love wildlife conservation, and I think that uh, it's become a passion even more when I can like get people and feel like I've made an impact in, in some way. So my ideas of conservation changes with the needs that I see. Uh, but the fatherhood really wasn't a, a big impact for it. I, you know, except for the change in that, like, Oh, well, you know, I, I want to be put in a position that'd be nice. And my, my kid one day, like, Oh yeah, my dad did that. Like, would it, would it some in, in some conservation uh, sense. And how do you think things are going to change now going forward with like the COVID situation? How can people help these and these animals in these situations? Is there something like, is there a, a way that you would recommend people listening who are interested in the monkeys and the lions and the tigers who follow you that could actually say, okay, this is a great way to help them. This is how we can help in this situation. Well, one of the biggest things in my opinion it goes back to what we talked about in the land use situation. One of the biggest land use um, that's working for animals right now is uh, ecotourism, right? So tourism, COVID smashed ecotourism and people don't know if it's coming back. So it's the, it's the low hanging fruit. It's the easiest thing. Like you want to go see, if you love lions, go see them, go pay your fare to that country that has them to that lodge that, that shows and, and try to keep that ecotourism model going because they're suffering and they need help. Uh, so that's that's a start because those models, the only models right now, not just ecotourism, but the the, the models where you're partnering with the, with the locals, those models are the only ones that are working for conservation right now, and they're starting to suffer. And we need to help them, you know. And in in a grander scale, like if you're talking more like COVID's really impacted the sanctuaries, the rescues, because they're they're mostly those places are tiny little places, poorly funded that are running on passion and love. Uh, so their income streams have been gone with COVID. So, you know, if you have a favorite place that, you know, had your favorite animal, uh, think about, you know, supporting them in some way, whether it's, you know, buying your membership for the summer or, or whatever it is, whatever they need for their support, go to that place and see what they need. Uh, because there is a shortage, I think, of people taking care of animals. And I think the more the more that the good people are getting wiped off the earth, the more that the prevalent evil people that don't really care about the animals and think of them as a, as an asset to abuse uh, are going to, are going to succeed in that way. Uh, so I think, you know, planning your ecotourism dollars, go to the, go to Yellowstone, go to Safari, 
Um, go to the local park. Go to the local zoo if, if, if you think it's a good one. Um, those things help to start. And then after that, chase your passion. I've always said information is everything. So, you know, you might be one of those people that are really interested in this one specific bird. Well, go do your, do your research. You're growing up in a world that isn't like me. I used to have to look through encyclopedias and trying to figure out what any particular species wanted or needed or where some group might be that needed my help uh, didn't exist. Whereas now it's a Google away. I know it's hard. It's hard to find that right group and that right way to help. But the more you research, the more questions you ask, the more emails you send, the more uh, the more time you spend on a species that you love, uh, you'll find a way to make an impact. Because this this was actually what I was afraid of. We're now an hour in, and I think there's we've only just started a quarter of the questions I have. I'm, I was such a big fan that there's so many areas I wanted to cover. But I mean, you've you've helped me learn about animals you've grown my sort of passion for animals uh, my nephew who's 10 loves animals and i show him like youtube videos of yours and he'll be like oh my god that's amazing can i see another one can you do it? so that's you've awesome. so you've built in this passion for him and i can't say thanks enough for inspiring a kid from the highlands in scotland that they could work okay. with animals that you know that they could go and do these things or even that's just awesome. understand the planet bear it's great yeah you know, I would love to have you on again and really go into overcoming fear, the work you've done on dangerous islands, you know, the time you've done with in the pride. There's so many areas. But right. I know that well, you're probably a really busy guy at the minute. So what do you want people to take from this interview? If there was a sort of message, maybe a myth, if uh, a reminder for people to take, what would you, you want know, it to be? Generally speaking, whenever I do things like this, I do it because I want to inform people. I want people to especially the animal, the people who are passionate about animals. I want them to be like, if I've, if I've given them any bit of information, like, oh, I want that question answered. Great. And you know, if, if people get a little more excited, maybe, maybe someone who's listened to this wants to, does a YouTube search and see some of those videos you talked about with your nephew and, and they get a little bit more passionate about some species. Great. My goal in life is just to impress upon people how animals are awesome. Uh, and then also that, you know, sharing of information is going to help. Uh, so, you know, if I if, if any of the information people got from this stuff and they felt like they're a little step closer to loving animals a little bit more or, or, or getting other people involved, like, you know, let it spread like wildfire. Well, I still have pages of questions, so we could go yeah, for hours well, more. Yeah, we'll get to them. Uh, we'll get to them on uh, on volume two. Because <laughs> that's what I love about this. It's like when you actually find somebody who genuinely cares, you just sit there and go, I could speak to him all day. And I think that's a, that's definitely the thing. You know, it's you're not a celebrity chasing fame hungry guy. You're an animal lover who's doing amazing work, helping people, educating them, and showcasing these beautiful animals. And you're inspiring people to help animals and give them the support, help. You know, you, you're doing amazing work. Thank and you. there's just the small trolls who who are just who never going to change the part of success you take it as a compliment no you're always going to have people who are going to moan about the fact that you're on and say oh he does this and i think have you listened to the interview no well then you can't say anything until you've listened to it yeah you know it's that's it's like the misinformation with the, the covid situation until people will actually sit and listen rather than follow social media or what their parents say yeah. um how can people follow you? How can we keep in touch, see what you're doing? Well, great question. I haven't been doing my social media very much. I'm going to get back on it this year. So 
I'd say uh, the one that I'm most active with or would be most active with is Instagram. So my Instagram is real Dave Salmoni, which is stupid because why would someone else be Dave Salmoni? But there is somebody that's taken my name and pretends to be me. Real Dave Salmoni is me. Um, and uh, I'll make the promise that I'll get back on it in the next couple of weeks. Well, that's it for another week. And thank you for listening. It's now time to take what you've learned and use it to develop and enhance your life with the key points mentioned. Listen, try it, embrace it, use it, and crush it. Now's your time to hit that next level in your life. If you liked this episode, then please leave a comment on the show notes or a review of the show on your podcast platform. Everything helps evolve the show. Until next week, keep seeking the next level in your life.